This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. And what a week it has been. The House moving ahead on two articles of impeachment against President Trump. New questions on what a Senate trial will look like. And for perspective on all of this is Joshua Geltzer. He is a scholar, a constitutional scholar at Georgetown University Law School. He's also the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown. Thanks for stopping by. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Steve, for the invitation. I saw a headline the other day, Merry Christmas, Mr. President, you're impeached. Put all of this in perspective and the roadmap that's ahead for the U.S. Senate. This is definitely coal in the stocking. In other words, no president, no presidential candidate runs for office wanting to be in the predicament that this president is now in. We're at a point in which this president has been investigated, in which there have been witnesses, first in closed testimony, then in open testimony, who worked for this president, laying out what they describe and what, of course, the House of Representatives has now described – as a pattern of misdeeds, we've then layered onto those facts some legal analysis, scholars who appeared before the House, generally explaining why those misdeeds amount to things in the ballpark of impeachable offenses. Then we've had layered on top of that a majority of members of the House say that in their view these actions do constitute impeachable offenses, and now we're at the brink of the trial. Not a typical trial, not a criminal trial, civil trial, but the impeachment version of a trial in the Senate. Well, let me go back to the Senate floor and the comments from the two key leaders, beginning with Senator McConnell. And and I'm going to let you listen to what they said about Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Papers, because clearly they are reading this from two very different perspectives. Let's begin with the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. Hamilton said explicitly in Federalist 65 that impeachment involves not just legal questions, but inherently political judgments about what outcome best serves the nation. The House can't do both. The courts can't do both. This is as grave an assignment as the Constitution gives to any branch of government. And the framers knew only the Senate could handle it. That was Senator McConnell Thursday on the Senate floor, and a short while later, this from the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer. It is true, as the leader has said, that the framers built the Senate to provide stability and to keep partisan passions from boiling over. However, their vision of the Senate is a far cry from the partisan body Senator McConnell has created. So, Joshua Geltzer, what did the framers intend, and is this what they expected? I think they expect an impeachment to be a last resort, but one available in those instances where a president has so abused the public office and the trust on the behalf of the American people that that office represents as to necessitate removal. And Senator uh, McConnell is right to talk about impeachment being a fusing, in a sense, of law and politics. But there is real law there, and I think it's important to pull that out. The question of what constitutes an impeachable offense has a legal component to it. In other words, we have the same tools available to us in trying to answer that question 
that we have available to us when we try to answer other tough questions of constitutional law. We can look at different drafts of the Constitution. We can look at what people like Hamilton said about why they had included this in the Constitution in the first place. We can look at comparisons historically. What we ultimately see is that what was intended by high crimes and misdemeanors was something that didn't need to be a federal crime. In many cases, it might be, but it was not the same. And that so abused public office, public faith, almost a breach of fiduciary duty, uh, that it meant that a president no longer was fit to serve. Interestingly, Alexander Hamilton talked in particular about inviting foreign interference with our elections, the, the cornerstone of our democracy, as the type of set of circumstances that might lead to consideration of impeachment. Based on the evidence and the testimony and the debate over the last three to four months, did the president commit an impeachable offense? And let me break that question into two. One is the question of would trading missiles that were allocated by Congress to go to Ukraine as well as a White House visit for the announcement by Ukraine of an investigation into a family member of a political rival, would that constitute an impeachable offense? Not only do I think the answer is yes, but I think all four legal experts who were called before the House Judiciary Committee, actually all four of them said yes. Not just the three Democrats uh, witnesses, but the Republicans witness as well. Jonathan Turley. Jonathan Turley. Professor Turley, if you listen carefully to his opening statement, he says that that could constitute an impeachable offense. Then there's the question of, is that what President Trump did? Now, to that, I also think the answer is yes. Uh, I think that's a a yes made even easier by the fact that we have people like his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, saying there was a quid pro quo, having Ambassador Ambassador Sondland, uh, our ambassador to the EU, put there by Donald Trump, uh, testifying that there was a quid pro quo. I think the answer is yes. Professor Turley thought the answer was no, that more fact-finding was needed. It's hard to me. It's hard for me to understand why more fact-finding would be needed on that. But it's interesting to me that on the pure legal question, you had four out of four witnesses saying that type of activity is impeachable. And then I think the extensive report put together by uh, House Democrats essentially lays out that factually that is what happened. So here's what I don't quite understand. If you look at the Senate Democrats, there are four individuals that they want to testify in a Senate trial. One of them, you just mentioned Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, another John Bolton, the former national security advisor. Why didn't House Democrats try to force that during their investigation, even if it meant going to the courts, something that we heard from Senator McConnell on the Senate floor? Well, House Democrats have gone to the the courts Uh, on the same principle. And I say this with some investment in the matter as uh, our institute at Georgetown Law, the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, we represent the House in in the lawsuit against Don McGahn. And we in House lawyers have been saying to the courts, uh, in a nutshell, that there is no such doctrine as absolute immunity from congressional testimony for a former advisor to the president. A district judge has agreed with that. A federal judge agreed with that, echoing federal judges before her. That case is now up on appeal. Uh, It'll be argued uh, early in the new year in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That principle is being adjudicated by the courts. But what I hear Democrats back on the Hill saying is, even as we vindicate that principle, this impeachment process can't wait. And it can't wait in particular because at the heart of this impeachment is the idea that the elections are being distorted by the very person in the Oval Office. 
And with November 2020 approaching, that is a scary thought, and it may not be able to sit and wait on the timeline that litigation generally requires. And what about the authority that Senate Republicans have in the majority in terms of the contours of any impeachment trial? There is quite a bit of leeway for the Senate, Senate as a whole, one hopes, but ultimately, uh, as, as a practical matter, it's a, it, obviously those who have the majority have a lot of sway. There's a lot of leeway overall to determine how this process plays out in the Senate. Supreme Court once heard a, a challenge to how the Senate had conducted an impeachment of a uh, federal judge, Walter Nixon. Um, and the Supreme Court basically vindicated the notion that within the parameters laid out by the Constitution, there is a lot of flexibility for the Senate to determine how to do an impeachment trial. In that case, they had had one committee of the Senate obtain evidence and then bring that evidence to the full Senate. However, uh, just because there is little in the way of guidance in the constitutional text or guidance that might come from the courts doesn't change the, the, the fundamental obligation that all public servants have to do things fairly and do things in a way that seems to vindicate the process. And I think what's happening now behind closed doors, I hope is happening now behind closed doors, is a conversation involving Senate Republicans, sure, but ideally Senate Democrats, too, about what it means to take what the House has done and give it it's fair airing in the Senate. Give the president his fair airing in the Senate. So let me get your perspective on the issue of impeachment and go back 21 years ago, because as you remember, House and Senate Republicans going after Bill Clinton on charges of perjury, but perjury related to an affair, an illicit affair that he had that was wrong morally. They insisted that that rose to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. And now we have a complete reversal from Republicans defending this president. And conversely, Democrats were on the other side of the aisle back in 1998, 1999. And now they're looking at this from a very different perspective as well. There's got to be some politics in, in how people talk about these things, describe these things, even though uh, many of us uh, try to talk about the law and try to remove ourselves from what our political predilections might be. But here's what strikes me as something of a tell uh, as to where congressional, especially House Republicans, have been coming from. As House Republicans explained one by one their votes against both articles of impeachment, and of course every House Republican voted against both uh, of the two articles of impeachment referred to the full House by the House Judiciary Committee, they didn't say things like, look, the president has done something wrong here, but... I'm not sure it rises to the level of impeachable offense. Or the president has done something that really can't be permitted, but I'd like to see censure as the remedy. Virtually one by one, they stood up and said, the president has done nothing wrong here. That's very different from what we all heard during the Clinton impeachment inquiry, where there were a number of Democrats, some who actually cast votes this way, but apart from votes, who said, look, perjury is that's not acceptable. Uh, an affair in the Oval Office is not acceptable. And then they discussed what they thought the standards were for high crimes and misdemeanors. And it seems to me that the tell here is that House Republicans generally aren't even willing to acknowledge that a phone call of the type we've all been able to read is wrong. And that suggests that it is a lot of politics and very little sincere grappling with the facts and the applicable legal standards happening this time around. We're talking with Joshua Geltzer. He is a professor, also an author, graduate of Princeton and Yale Law School. What's your background? How did this become such a passion for you? 
So I had the opportunity to work in the executive branch. Uh, I worked in the Justice Department's National Security Division on a pretty wide range of national security, legal, and policy issues, and then had the opportunity to go to the White House to work at the National Security Council, first as a lawyer there, and then uh, working on counterterrorism policy specifically. And throughout, I had the opportunity to work on issues of executive authority and the limits of it and the scope of issues such as executive privilege dealt with requests for for congressional oversight and what the executive branch would respond uh, to Congress with. And all of this left me quite interested in uh, how the two branches interact, including in very sensitive areas like national security. And so to see this impeachment inquiry really stemming from a national security question, the question of um, protecting the sanctity of American elections, of, of, of the fundamentals of our democracy, is in some ways a national security question. And to see that drive a whole impeachment inquiry has been particularly fascinating to me. What worries you the most about 2020? What worries me is how little we seem to be doing to fight those we know are trying to distort our democracy because we're spending so much energy fighting internally. Now, I think the fights internally are, are valid because I think there are real problems. But... We know that in 2016, one, at least one, hostile foreign power, Russia, used the Internet and social media and a whole host of tools to mess with our democracy and to infect our political discourse and dialogue with uh, falsities, with misleading information, with malinformation, things that were uh, accurate emails but provided in a way that distorted uh, how we thought about our political cycle and our candidates. And we know that's happening again. Robert Mueller sat in front of Congress uh, when he testified and said it's happening again for 2020 already. So to be as knowledgeable as we now are about the nature of that threat and yet not unified in addressing it, showing resilience in the face of it, that really worries me as 2020 approaches. The issue's different, but I want to ask you about the politics of the first impeachment, Andrew Johnson, 1868, and what... what we are seeing now with President Trump. Are there parallels in terms of the politics? I think there's at least one parallel, which is these are both national security-driven impeachments in a sense. I mean, Andrew Johnson was impeached on its face because he fired his cabinet member who was overseeing post-Civil War reconstruction. And Congress had passed a statute that said that he couldn't do that without going to Congress. We all now recognize that that statute was unconstitutional. And so... The, the fact that he was acquitted in the Senate trial by a single vote is seen as something of a, of a vindication, that politics weren't held against him. Instead, senators acquitted him for something we look back at and say that was not an appropriate thing to, to, to impeach a president for violating an unconstitutional statute would not be appropriate. But again, only one vote. That's significant. Only one vote. And here's the thing. The reason I emphasize that on its face that was why Johnson was impeached is – Johnson did some awful, awful things. I mean, Johnson sold out the Union's victory in the Civil War. He allowed the South to do in peace, in some ways, what it had been unable to achieve in war. And a lot of Americans had died precisely so that Reconstruction could ensure that slavery and its vestiges were really stamped out. So the notion that Andrew Johnson was as a whole vindicated, or his presidency was vindicated by his acquittal in the Senate trial, would be wildly mistaken. And I find it interesting to look at how he sold out the country and the security of the country as fundamentally being 
even if not on its face, fundamentally driving his impeachment, having some parallels with what the accusations are against President Trump right now. This was the president's uh, campaign rally in Battle Creek, Michigan, on the same night that the House of Representatives voting on two articles of impeachment along a party line vote. He said this. Oh, I think we have a vote coming in. So we got every single Republican voted for us. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Wow. Almost 200. So, so we had 198, 229, 198. We didn't lose one Republican vote. And, and three Democrats voted for us, Haley. Haley! Thank you, Haley. Great job. Wow. The Republican Party has never been so affronted, but they've never been so united as they are right now. Ever. Never. And I know the senators and they're great guys and women, too. We have some great women. We have great guys. They're great people. They love this country. They're going to do the right thing. And so with an eye on a Senate trial, clearly the political battle lines have been drawn. And as I listen to that, I I often wonder how Richard Nixon would have dealt with a circumstance like that, because he became very inward. The campaign rallies were almost non-existent. Donald Trump is out there in, in the face of Democrats. I guess this has become the standard Donald Trump defense, which is, of course, offense, not defense. He goes on offense and attacks those who've criticized him which to me suggests he doesn't have a very good defense on the merits. He's not saying that a a trade of of what Ukraine wanted for for what he personally wanted for his political future would somehow be justifiable. I think you'd have a, a tough time making that case. Instead, he's saying they're coming for us and we're holding together. That's not really a defense on the merits. It it is a a statement of the raw politics of the vote he had just seen. Um, but that still leaves a Senate trial ahead. And uh, as much as House Republicans obviously didn't break ranks, it's it's always unclear when one goes to trial of any sort how things play out and how they play out before the audience that matters most, a, a jury in, in the case of a normal trial or a group of senators in the case of an impeachment trial. And um, my hope is that whatever senators of either party vote, that they make clear in their public comments to the American people that doing the sort of thing President Trump has been accused of doing is unacceptable. Because establishing that as a principle, establishing that you can't take the power of public office and point it towards private, political, partisan gain, that is a principle that I hope gets established by this process, regardless of how the Senate vote comes out. So when you hear from congressional Republicans that complain about the process, they say, we still need to hear from the whistleblower. Your reaction is what? twofold. One, that misunderstands how whistleblowers work, and two, it misunderstands how this impeachment inquiry has played out. On the first, it misunderstands how whistleblowers work because a whistleblower, it's like a tipster. They call the cops and they say, I think something may have gone awry here. Over to you all. Figure it out. That's exactly what the original whistleblower here did. And of course, the inspector general of the intelligence community, very much to his credit, then dug in and found something that he deemed urgent and credible. And he then pursued ensuring that it got the the, the fuller inquiry to which it was entitled. He, he faced some interference on that front, but he was able to get it there eventually. 
to suggest that somehow a whistleblower needs to see through the process misunderstands the role of the whistleblower and would deter others in the future from doing what many whistleblowers have done, which is helping uh, misdeeds to come to light. But it also misunderstands where we are because the people who are closest to this fall into two categories. Either they've already testified. Think of Ambassador Sondland. He showed up. He testified. We learned a lot from him. He very much saw what was happening as a quid pro quo. That's about as firsthand as it gets. This is the person who was on his cell phone with the president, loud enough for others to hear. The other category are people who were equally close, but whom the president has directed not to testify. And if the president wants to hear from those who are closest to this whole incident, he should just encourage those folks to show up at the Senate trial and testify. But that's well within his control. And Joshua Geltzer, to that point, the next question is how a Senate trial would unfold and we'll learn more in the days ahead. But this is what Speaker Nancy Pelosi told reporters one day after House Democrats voted to impeach President Trump precedent for this and i met with my six chairs after some of us were together for a press conference after the votes last night uh and we discussed the precedent of it all and that is in the uh most recent uh case taking up an impeachment uh there was uh, a proposal on the floor uh put together by in a bipartisan way 100 senators voted for the process on how they would go forward uh, on the case of, of President Clinton. We would hope that they could come to some conclusion like that. But is that likely? I suppose the optimist in me wants to say, regardless of whether it's likely, I hope it happens. Because for the American people to see that 100 senators could at least agree to the process, I think would be such a wonderful thing in these highly polarized highly fraught, highly partisan times to say, look, some of us think that this will vindicate the president and some of us think that it will really show the president deserves to be impeached. But regardless, here's the way we're going to show that. You know, it's like kids on the playground agreeing to the rules of a game and then may the best side win. So uh, the odds seem low given how far apart uh, the, the parties have been on so much recently. But I think the stakes are high, even for getting the process down um, uh, unanimously. And I do hope there are folks who are able to bridge that gap and, and show up with something they can say to the American people. We all agree that this is a fair way for this to unfold. And now you'll see us descend back into our corners as to whether it proves one way or proves the other in terms of the president's wrongdoings. So with regard to the process under the category mistakes made, let's take this from two different uh, vantage points. First, on the Democratic side, did they make mistakes this past year? in how the impeachment inquiry played out. You know, it seems that they, they really elicited quite a lot of information about this Ukraine transaction. And they did it in closed-door sessions, in part because there were classification concerns about intelligence. There's, in fact, still a battle, apparently, between House Democrats and the vice president's office regarding declassifying some testimony of one of the vice president's aides. But then they turned around and found how to present that story more succinctly in an open format and ultimately wrote a lengthy, very lengthy report on what had been drawn out. Now, to the extent they couldn't get more, that was due to some resistance, resistance that, as you and I discussed, Steve, is being fought in the courts and is largely within the control of the, of the president to, to end if he believes that there's a story that's good for him to be told. But uh, I think... In, in a relatively short order, Democrats have taken this Ukraine saga, really unpacked it, and put it on display for the American people, and apparently put it on display for the Senate, assuming this trial gets going. And what about for the Republicans? 
What mistakes, if any, did they make? I wish Republicans uh, on the Hill could, as I mentioned before, separate out what they think of the impeachment question with what they think of the president's conduct question. Because the question of what constitutes an impeachable offense is a very fair and at times tough conversation to be had. I remember it being had with respect to President Clinton. It was had before that with respect to President Nixon. It's actually been had with respect to a lot of presidents over the years whom someone or the other has criticized and then tried to push that criticism into the impeachment lane. But for those on the Hill, uh, for Republicans in particular on the Hill, to say whatever their view is of an impeachable offense and say, but it is the job of the president to protect American elections, not infect them, not invite distortion of them by a foreign power, uh, and certainly not to trade the benefits of public office for private gain. That, to me, would be, um, I think, would actually add to their credibility on the impeachment question, but I also think it would be really important for our democracy. If nothing else, this has been yet another lesson on the U.S. Constitution for Americans in so many references to the founders. Is this what they expected? I think it is. I don't think any founder would have said that impeachment was going to be easy when it rolled around. It was made hard for a reason. Uh, it was. You can tell. You can tell because it not only has to go through both houses, but it has that supermajority requirement in the Senate. And uh, it should be hard because it's a big step. I don't think the language of that some have been using, that impeachment uh, and removal reverses the result of an election, I don't think that's correct. Because if President Trump were removed, let's say tomorrow, the president would be Mike Pence, the other person that Americans voted for, at least some Americans voted for, uh, in 2016. The cabinet would look exactly the same. I suspect the policies would look exactly the same. So to say that impeachment undoes an election, I think, is, is just mistaken. But it's nonetheless a big step to take out that person, that individual who was at the top of the ticket that many Americans voted for. And, and the framers wanted to make that hard, but they wanted to make it possible. And the question of when something that's hard but possible should be utilized... I guess that's the question before 100 senators in the next few weeks. And you're pointing out to the uh, the partisan journalism that we're seeing in the opinions, the talking points from Democrats and Republicans. So bottom line, Professor Geltzer, how do you think history is going to look at this time? My hope is that they will look at this moment as a low point of American um, politics in at least this sense. There is such a disagreement right now, not just on interesting legal questions or historical questions about impeachment, but about facts, but about things that the intelligence community, bipartisan committees on the Senate, like the Senate Intelligence Committee, have already said, and in particular I have in mind here the notion that the election interference that afflicted America in 2016 came not from Ukraine, but from Russia, uh, facts about what the president said in his phone call with uh, the Ukrainian leader, Zelensky, there's such a disagreement on facts that it makes it so hard to move from that to any sort of agreement on politics or law or how our constitutional order should proceed. And whether we emerge from this current impeachment uh, process with President Trump in the Oval Office or out of the Oval Office, I hope that we can begin to get back to a place where there's an agreement on facts and build from that an agreement on policies, on some key legal issues, and ultimately a place where the U.S. Congress spends its time on getting stuff done and getting bills enacted rather than 
uh, as it has been tilted towards. It's also somber responsibility of oversight and at times impeachment, but one that lately hasn't led uh, allowed a lot of time for fixing the very real problems the country faces. And one final note. Oh, by the way, we're heading into an election year in 2020. So the politics in all of this is going to be ratcheting up even higher. I think that's right. And, and Democrats would say that makes the stakes for what is being examined in this impeachment inquiry all the higher because it's all about administering U.S. elections, uh, this impeachment inquiry. And, of course, Republicans come back and say, well, voters should decide. Um, but I don't think the answer of voters should decide gets at the question of impeachment because impeachment was not put in the Constitution for voters. It was put in the Constitution for the U.S. Congress. And evaluating in good faith whether a particular president's actions meet that threshold, that's part of what those who serve in the House and Senate sign up to do. And put in the Constitution by whom? Who is the person behind the idea of impeachment? You know, Alexander Hamilton seems to have been uh, one of the big proponents, which is quite interesting because Hamilton somewhat famously believed in a powerful executive. Some criticized him at the time for believing in too powerful an executive. Part of his case for a powerful executive was a powerful check on the executive where that was necessary. If you were going to make the president as powerful as Hamilton envisioned, you needed a way to do something when that power was abused or misused. And that's where he thought impeachment came in. Joshua Geltzer, he is an author, a professor, a constitutional scholar at Georgetown University Law School here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for being with us. Thanks so much, Steve. And thanks for listening. A reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app on the web at cspan.org. We thank you for listening.